You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Kels. Uh, friends, hey, I got to do some work for Magnolia uh, last year. Many of you probably know Magnolia because you've gone shopping. But also, if you turn on the TV and you see one of the original house renovation programs, Fixer Upper with Joe and, uh, Joe and Chip Gaines, just the playfulness uh, and also the amazing work they do there in Waco. Well, not great, surprisingly, Magnolia is a whole thing with all kinds of people. And they have this amazing foundation that does some work under the radar as well as uh, above the radar. And in the course of spending some time there, I got to uh, meet a delightful Renaissance man or Renaissance man, depending on what side of the equator you like to be born in, uh, Justin Rossellino. Uh, Justin's my guest today. And uh, the reason I'm delighted, apart from just having, uh, we got to have a meal together mm-hmm. and just had so much fun at that meal. My wife and I still look back on that evening as one of our great highlights of last year, just the company around that table. Oh, yeah. But also... Anytime we would throw a conversation toward Justin, he had something very thoughtful and also very witty to say about it. So (laughs) I I kind of followed up with Justin. I'm like, you're the kind of guy I'd like to interview on the podcast. And if I remember right, Justin, your response was a bit like, why? (laughs) 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 Something like that. Yep, you were kind enough to send me your book. uh, Just to give you a little sense of Justin, his book is Idiot comma, Sojourner's Soul, Idiot Sojourner's Soul, uh, Sojourning Soul, I should say. And it's, gosh, equal parts irreverent memoir, historical treatment of evangelical Christianity. It weaves themes, his own personal life, a lot of wittiness, but also a treatment of the state of evangelicalism. How do we get here? What are some of the bigger ideas? Uh, Mm -hmm. Justin's also a musician, used to be a professional traveling guitarist, um, still, by the way, a wicked guitarist. You can actually Google him on Spotify and listen to some of his music. Many of you know I'm a guitarist. And so as I listen to Justin, I hear uh, Michael Hedges in there. I hear Phil Kagey, uh, some of those great, some of my own influences. So I thought, I just want to get Justin on the show. I think we're going to have a great conversation. So first of all, Justin, welcome to the Managing Leadership Anxiety podcast. Well, I'm super excited to be here Steve and I had uh, similar have similar recollections of our dinner. It was just a blast and felt very rich and uh, playful and deep. And like I could have sat there for hours and enjoyed you guys. And your wife is a rock star too, man. She's she's amazing. Yeah, yeah. she's my secret weapon in so many ways. Yeah, wonderful person. Yeah. So uh, let's just start by just giving people a framework of what you do now. Obviously, there's a lot of things we could chase, but tell us what you do for Magnolia now. That'll get us oriented, and then we'll jump in. Sure. So Magnolia, um, which obviously is this sort of Chip and jo- Joanna Gaines empire of, of uh, uh, home decor, lifestyle, et cetera, which is wonderful, impressive, and massive, um, Chip and Joe also are very uh, big-hearted, generous people who care a lot about others, about their neighbors, about their community. Um, as 
counterintuitive as it sounds, uh, Joanna is is actually pretty uh, introverted uh, and uh, self-deprecating and does not seek the limelight when it comes to being recognized for philanthropic efforts. And Chip is the same way, except he's extroverted. And so, um, but they really do care and uh, about the community and about well-being of others. And so essentially their foundation, which we can talk about the, the, uh, the foundation, technically speaking, it's, it's almost not a foundation. And when I say that, I mean, there are celebrity foundations that uh, where someone like a Tim Tebow, for instance, who's has a spectacular foundation and is pretty openly shameless in a great way about leveraging his name, his image, his brand to raise funds to do as wide um, of an impact in terms of his work, philanthropic work globally uh, as he can. And he's, it's amazing. Chip and Joe are ten, tend to be more private, more, um, oh gosh, we don't want to necessarily be recognized for what we're doing uh, under the radar, which I think is laudable and honorable and endearing. Um, and so we're small and it's really just me um, <laughs> going out there looking for ways well, with a specific focus on Central Texas, Waco, looking for ways to um, improve access uh, to opportunity for Wacoans and Central Texans because we are a, 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 an area of the country that struggles with, with poverty, which for a lot of historical reasons, reasons and otherwise tends to fall along racial lines. So that's a very long-winded answer and maybe not helpful. <laughs> no, I think very helpful. Here's where okay. things get really interesting really quickly, Justin, because you and I, I, I know people aren't sure. We are both as white as they come. I mean, Correct. I am so white, I'm almost translucent. <laughs> you too are white. You're an Italian New Yorker is yes. your uh, heritage. You're also a, a former professional traveling musician who then went into classics, which makes a lot of sense for anybody. That's a natural move for right. a traveling guitarist to then go into classics. You went into higher ed. You did a lot of work in private Christian schools. Now you find yourself um, leading this foundation almost as a one-man band, and you're tasked with shifting systems. Ideally, that's what you're trying to do. It's way beyond charity. You're actually trying to shift structures, and next thing you know, you are immediately in the middle of a complex conversation around race. Tell me how that first began for you. So I really... I mean, are we talking kind of life story stuff or it with respect to my current position in, in Waco or going back to my earlier interests in race, uh, economic empowerment or disempowerment, et cetera? I think, yeah, I think it would be interesting to hear a little bit about your earlier and then how that connects to what you ran into here. Yeah. So bottom line, I was I was raised uh, in Long Island, New York, in a um, family that did cherish uh, diversity, which I know can be a vague sort of, uh, and confusing buzzword these days. But uh, my parents just loved culture. Uh, and that, 
New York is a very diverse place, obviously, and proximity. We're all on top of each other, even in the suburbs, kind of. Um, and so uh, my father was a rhythm and blues musician, guitarist. He played in an R&B band in Harlem in the early 60s, which as a skinny white teenager, it was just him. So he played the Apollo Theater in like 63 or something, and which is an, an, an incredible story. And I think he was 18 and the only white guy in the room. Um, and so he brought us up with a love of music, culture, the arts, but also like, hey, pay attention to people who don't look like you or act like you. They have a lot of insights. Uh, people, humanity is to be celebrated and enjoyed. Um, and so I was kind of raised with that kind of sensitivity and some of the late seventies, it's funny, everybody, we're in a period right now where I feel like woke as a term and concept is being derided because it's gotten sort of um, played out in, in, in some contexts. But um, the 70s, there was a lot of that, you know, I grew up on Sesame yeah. Street and the electric company and just and the Muppets and the kind of like, you never knew what the musical guest was going to be. And it talked and, and there were diverse casts and uh, I found that to be celebratory and exciting and interesting. And so I always had that kind of bet. Um, and really, when I went to college in Virginia, um, was the first time, and I mean, this is an awkward thing to say, uh, but I noticed a few months into being in college, well, you know, why, why is it that everyone who works for the dining hall here is Black? and most of the students are white. And I, I had not experienced that kind of uh, clearly visible uh, default segregation, honestly, and, and classism that was that obvious to me. Maybe my eyes were just closed to it when I was younger, which is possible. But, um, and so really as an undergraduate, I started uh, asking a lot of questions and trying to learn more about what we now call race equity issues. Um, and I've maintained that interest ever since. Yeah, Dom Helder Camara, one of the early liberation theologians, he says, when I feed the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor are hungry, they call me a communist. Right. Why is that? I think, you know, you're... I wasn't just blowing smoke when I said uh, that your work is important and impressive to me um, in identifying anxieties and trying to do good productive work um, out of that um, and hopefully achieve some healing and growth. Uh, I think defensiveness, for me anyway, I'm defensive when I feel threatened. Yeah. Uh, and so implicit in the question of why are the poor poor, it, it, there can be a sense of uh, accusation, like, well, let me guess, uh, it's my fault. It's my fault that they're poor because I'm a white guy or whatever, because I participate thoughtlessly in a capitalist system. And we can certainly critique capitalism. That's certainly fair game. But I do think there's a knee jerk, oof, it sounds like this guy is going to start talking about 
I mean, equity is a terrifying word. Mm. Um, and really when I use it, I'm talking about equality of opportunity, which to be honest, we have yet to achieve that in Waco. We have not achieved the kind of good old fashioned 1950s, 60s, American dream, equality of opportunity, much of which Martin Luther King was hearkening to, calling forth, addressing uh, in his work, like, hey, America had the courage to write a check to say, hey, we're gonna be the land of opportunity, equality for all, um, et cetera, but we haven't really cashed that check. We haven't brought that dream that the founders and framers had had the audacity to dream. We haven't brought that to fruition. And I would say that of Waco, you know, we've got serious issues of, of poverty and lack of access, and a lot of those are systemic. And so when you start poking around with those, uh, it can be very threatening, which again, does make sense to me, to longtime Wacoans who are many of whom are really good, kind people yeah. um, and are, you know, can feel like, hey, man, it, it's, you're the obnoxious Italian New York guy who's been here six years. How about you tap the brakes when talking about the why uh, and maybe learn to be polite first, which I can certainly stand to use lessons and <laughs> politeness. But that that's my, uh, again, verbose answer to to the question you posed of um, why is it that the tone seems to shift and you're easily accused of communism? Plus, we're living in the wake of a century plus of a modern phenomenon of the spread and then decline of communism. And a lot of people that's still alive in our public consciousness. And I'm not a communist. I doubt you are. I have no interest in lighting that fire again. Um, right. Yeah. So. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I, I, when I went through a seminar in the mid '90s, my New Testament professor was black, and uh, great moment. We were a diverse school, but very much majority white, mm -hmm. um, and most of our diversity was some kind of international mm -hmm. students. Uh, and Dr. Alolia looked at us on the first day of class, and he said, uh, "I tell you what, you don't need is another book written by a white guy," which. <laughs> The moment he said it, it's like, wow, that's exactly like all we've really written was Eurocentric, the uh, read as Eurocentric theology. And mm -hmm. he introduced us to liberation theology, Southern Hemisphere, uh, James Cone. Um, but we went broad. I ended up in Aboriginal theology in my own home country. In fact, wow. one of my favorite interviews on this show was Anne Patel Gray, the first Aboriginal to get a doctorate of theology in Australia. Uh, but Dr. Alolia introduced us to the idea of privilege. Mm -hmm. And that was new to me as a 20-something-year-old. You know, you don't know the water you swim in. There is something in, intentionally or unintentionally uh, pushing on you, that word. Uh, a friend of mine uh, named Brendan, he suggests that we call it a social advantage, that, that white people have a social advantage, and it it's just is. Mm -hmm. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, privilege can be a very healthy uh, or helpful, I should say, term and concept. Um, so there are just certain realities. When I walk into a parking garage at 10 o'clock at night, I experience very little anxiety. 
yeah. uh, versus, you know, say my five foot five or six wife um, who might experience some justifiable uh, sense of anxiety about men. It's dark. I can be overpowered. We, you know, uh, misogyny is real. Sexual assault is real, etc. So that's a, an example of a privilege that I can yeah. invoke and use thousands of times without noticing or not yeah or not even invoke because you don't even know you have it kind of idea right right and so i don't think the concept of white privilege needs to be uh all encompassing and exclusionary in the sense that we can't also talk about other kinds of privilege or overlapping privileges. I think some of the work that has been done in intersectionality um, mm. is, is, is helpful in that regard. You can have multiple privileges happening at once. Um, you can have privileges that do sort of shift from time to time. So yes, my dad, I imagine back in 62, 63, felt a degree of uh, lack of privilege nervously plugging in his guitar on the stage at the Apollo, like, shoot, I'm the one, I'm probably one of the youngest guys in the room. I'm the only white guy in the room. I better not blow this. Um, I'm not familiar with everything that's happening around. He actually neglected to, you're supposed to uh, touch this rock at the Apollo. That's like a uh, kind of a symbolic ritual. Everyone who plays the Apollo touches the rock before you go on stage. He didn't. And awkwardly, apparently, the MC said, hey, man, don't you're you're invited here. Come on, you're on stage. Touch the rock. Hmm. So, and I'm sure that was awkward. And however, that's comparatively trivial when you talk, when you compare that, say, to some of the privilege that and privileged systems and patterns that a place like Waco struggles with, where we have a part of town that's historically predominantly black hovering around the low 20,000 mark um, for average median household income of four. Sometimes that has been like 18, 19,000, sometimes mid 20s, 27. But that is exceptionally low. This is a part of town that didn't have a bank branch for 100 years. That buses don't run past 5 p.m. or before 7 a.m. So if you don't have a car, night school is a challenge 20 minutes away. A night shift is a challenge, et cetera. Uh, And it's a food desert. That's a lot of privilege, man. That's a lot of stuff that middle class, working class, white way Cohens who have their own struggles and life can be hard period, right? but right. might not consciously face um, or think about not facing hardly ever. Um, define a food desert for us. There might be people, particularly those in North America, might be quite shocked to learn what this is. Yeah, but man, you want to talk about a complicated problem. So food deserts are typically urban environments, so parts of cities or large towns where there is no a grocery store that sells essential healthy staples, um, whether that's milk, bread, butter, fruit, vegetables, fresh meat, um, non-processed, non-junk foods, 
Uh, there's no grocery store within walking distance. So it can be two or three miles or more um, in any direction to get to a grocery store. Um, in the defense of the grocery store owners, right, those are for-profit business ventures, especially the mom and pop ones. So it's like, man, I'm just trying to, you know, imagine you're starting up a grocery store. I'm trying to find where the market is, be yeah. strategic about location, location, location to sell the most goods so I can provide for my family. Uh, I wasn't even thinking about the fact that, wait a minute, there are areas of town that have no access to grocery stores, period, or no ready access. Maybe it's a 45-minute, hour and 15-minute bus ride both ways. You know, that's prohibitive of, of, uh, of nutrition, of, of achieving and maintaining health. And that has all sorts of unfortunate, unintended outcomes. Yeah, so we, we really are getting into a systemic conversation. You know, obviously this whole podcast is actually about systems yep. and most of our attention is the system inside ourselves and how we infect rooms and are infected but mm -hmm. the larger conversation is every individual forming a group which becomes a system and anytime you are doing systemic work especially with social structures and especially with financial situations it's long and slow and lots of resistance and lots, it's difficult. Like it feels like Justin, you work and work and work and work and then make a little bit of progress. So in, in, our, in mm -hmm. our church, we came to our city to discover there was no affordable housing and no public yeah. transport in our mm -hmm. city. And it was probably an eight to 10 year journey to go from that moment to actually getting something we could point our finger at and say, well, there's some progress. And mm -hmm. now we're 14 years in and we're actually seeing a compounding pro, pro, uh, progress in affordable housing, but cool. that involved a lot of quiet fights and loud fights um, yep. in our city. Um, what progress are you encouraged by that you see is going on now? Yeah, so I would say it's still slow and steady, but um, it's, a, it's a town where we've had several mayors, some of whom predate me being here. I wasn't around, but I know either them or know of them who had the courage to kind of hold space and convene difficult, awkward conversations with um, Waco's, for lack of a better term, uh, old guard. And I don't say that to, to um, belittle them uh, or disparage them, but any town that's... Uh, kind of small for generations and where there's kind of an established rhythm to things, a certain uh, number of families who I know some of those families and they're kind, generous, big hearted, um, but they t have tended to kind of dominate local businesses, banking, entrepreneurship, et cetera, for, for decades. And again, some of that has to do with just the size of the town. And it wasn't you know, we're not a five million person city where there's been businesses popping up on every quarter for 50 or every corner for 50 years. Um, but the to sort of move us towards uh, greater possibilities of equity, we've had some mayors who have been courageous in, I would say, 
listening, patiently convening, patiently holding space. That's really hard. I am mm. not naturally gifted in that way. I'm not. Mm. I've learned I'm much better than I was 25 years ago. But um, and so they've helped with um, to support and rally around um, initiatives that I think have been impactful. Like we had some race equity workshops in the city starting in about 2016. Um, this is pre-George Floyd. Um, uh, there was still a sense at that point that, man, we have problems in America, uh, contemporary problems when it comes to race equity, police violence, et cetera. Uh, but in some ways, it was a, an anticipatory move. It was before the real 2019-2020 explosions that we saw of Black Lives Matter, Me Too, et cetera. Um, but these workshops, some of which were funded by the very businessmen and women who've lived in the city for generations, have benefited from inherited wealth, inherited businesses, and who would be really easy for me to disparage and dismiss mm -hmm. as like, you're part of the problem, shut up and mm -hmm. go away. Some of those people funded these programs and workshops to convene city leaders in intentionally curated groups that were multi-ethnic diversity of thought. And those for, helped forge new relationships and partnerships. And uh, now we're at a place where our local city government, which has been very small, mostly um, volunteer positions that are unpaid. Our, our mayors have been part-time unpaid. Uh, and to this day, uh, as are many other, uh, you know, uh, gosh, what are they called? Not commissioners, councilmen and women who yep. serve the city. Um, but we have, they've done a lot of great work recently with hiring uh, a team to address more formally our affordable housing crisis, which we have here, um, and to convene task forces to brainstorm, come up with proposals and strategies and solutions. And some of those are being enacted. I mean, we're, uh, which I can get into the nitty gritty of some of those, but that is just in my six years here, I've seen some of those things happening. Um, I'm not the most patient guy in the world. So some of that I wish was happening much faster. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll stop. And no. No, it's it's really good. I mean, I'm I'm just managing my own brain, Justin, as I hear you talk, because the two things that are going through in my mind are six years is actually quite quick for these kinds of moves. But of course, what's also true is almost always in these situations, there's, for want of a better word, people of peace that you mm -hmm. find when you come into a city. First of all, Justin, if you're in New Yorker living in Texas, I believe the fastest way to become a Texan is to listen to Lyle Lovett 24 seven. I think <laughs> you can't go wrong with Lyle. He's actually, all jokes aside, one of my all time favorite singer songwriters. Uh, the man. Um, he isn't he though, thank you for that. I appreciate the endorsement. Uh, and, and my dream as a preacher is when I go long is the sound man just plays the song Church. Oh man. Just, just passive aggressively as I walk off the stage, but I digress. 
But um, the second point I wanted to say was what my experience was is there were already people in this city with a similar heartbeat or people showed up after I showed up. And, man, that coalition. And I love how nuanced you are about this. It's not broad brush. Systems thinking has no interest in blame and demonization. It's always about taking responsibility, looking at the resistance, dissolving resistance. So it sounds just hearing you talk, it sounds like there there are a number of people already doing this work. You're joining it. You're mm-hmm. chipping away at your own. L- let me jump to the end of this because I, I also want to grab a couple of other topics with you. Um, what would be if you take your average under-resourced person of color? Mm-hmm. Um, how would you measure? Okay, success. Okay, we we made a difference here. What does that look like for that person? What I would like to see in Waco is um, our numbers right now are, are so dire, uh, and this is not a new thing, uh, but are uh, the number of kids who are at, deemed at risk in middle and high school, who don't graduate, who become um, opportunity youth, they're sometimes called, uh, to put it in polite, comforting terms. Basically, that means uh, people between their mid-teens and early 20s who are neither employed nor in school of any sort and that we can't track. We can't figure mm. out how they're living or what they're doing. We have thousands of those at any given time. I want to see those numbers. I mean, it's kind of an unsexy goal to put it in terms of math, uh, but um, I want to see those numbers go down drastically. I want us to be a city where it is a given that if you have at least one adult in your household who is interested in your flourishing as a child and as one day an adult, um, and you have a, a normal average amount of initiative and willingness, you can pursue a meaningful, um, uh, satisfying uh, trade, vocation, uh, higher education trajectory toward not only gainful uh, employment, but adult flourishing. Um, And so that might be vague. I'm just trying to be somewhat realistic, which is hard for me because I'm an idealist for sure. but I, I, I do think that would be, and if we could see in 10 years, some of those shocking statistics and negative numbers cut in half, um, that would be huge. If we could in the next 10 years somehow get an additional one to 2,000 affordable units, that's going to be hard, man. Um, that's going to be for us, for our size, that's hard. Yeah, for your size town, that's a big number, isn't it? Yeah. And I would like to see us, uh, a majority of our public school students, um, on a trajectory toward flourishing, which again tends to mean either college acceptance, admittance, or a, a relatively smooth transition into trade, vocation, entrepreneurship, et cetera. And we're not there.
Justin, uh, the problem with having a Renaissance man on the show is we could take any one topic and uh, spend a lot of time on it. Obviously, systemic poverty and um, social enterprise in a local context is its whole, not just episode, but a whole season. This is such an essential work. I know many of us keep ringing the bell that this is the work the church should be doing. We believe it's profoundly biblical, the matters of justice and systems. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a Renaissance man, we have many other topics. I, I, I fear we're not even going to get to your book, which was this delightful That's okay. read. That's but it, it's interesting, the themes of this, the way you, you are cultivating various streams into one theory. But I would like to get your take on uh, the state of Christian music nowadays. You have been a touring musician. Um, some of your work was in the Christian music world. Um, I'm confused why in the 80s and 90s we had phenomenal diversity of music within the Christian music world. And I understand the arguments about, is it Christian? You can't baptize music. But I'm just talking about people who were Christians making music for a Christian audience. We still had alternative. I'm thinking the Lost Dogs. I'm thinking Steve Taylor with his punk, Charlie Peacock, that in many ways had all of that Motown influence pouring out of him. Uh, It feels like so much of that has gone away. What's your take on that? Before I offer my take, I'm going to I'm going to brag about uh, two things real quick, just for fun. But one, I happen to have visited Charlie Peacock's studio. So Charlie is an accomplished uh, songwriter, produ- spectacular producer, uh, and player, great piano player. But I happen to go by one day, and I don't know Charlie super well, but it was a day where he was editing. A, um, a cover version of a song he had written called In the Light that he wrote for DC Talk, or at least they recorded the most well-known version of it. Um, and uh, a cover of that tune by Bella Fleck and Phil Keggy. I've listened uh, to it. That's right, that they did for a tribute album to Charlie, which I thought was wonderful. So I want to say, that Charlie had 20 to 30 minutes, it might have been closer to 20, continuous, one improvised take live of Bela and Phil covering it masterfully. So we just sat there like, how do you edit this down to three to five minutes? Which I think they ended up doing. Having they did, yep. You can't yep. put out a record. <laughs> I guess you can if it's the 70s, a prog rock record of one song. But uh, And I was just like, dude, I mean, to have these two guys in the same room, Phil Kagey and Bela Fleck, I, I just thought, what an honor for Charlie. And he was sitting there basking and overwhelmed, like, this is so cool and hard that I have to edit this. But anyway, the other thing, Matt Rawlings, who I also don't know very well, but an ace. Lyle Lovett's pianist. Ace pianist who uh, was kind enough to play on one of my records uh, and killed it, you know, like with no prep, no context, just came in one day, sat down at a piano that wasn't his, and it was, you know, beautiful. And he's a very gracious, uh, uh, brilliantly talented person. But I digress. Enough bragging. Those are two. Well, fun- before you digress, I mean, I think yeah. Matt Rawlings, he primarily he plays a lot with Lyle Lovett and Mark Knopfler. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the finest recorded modern pianists, I would say. I agree. Uh, and I just 
got to know him, friend of a friend of a friend, and really liked him as a person first. But uh, my first exposure to Lyle Lovett was church. Yes. And, uh, and then I was like, this is just cool country. If whatever it is, as a Long Island guy, I was like, I don't know what this is. I guess it's country, but it's awesome. But um, yeah, he's, he is no joke. Yeah. So it does seem that Christian music has shrunk in genre. And I mean, I'd say I, I in really enjoy and benefit from modern worship music. I love it. I yeah. love listening to it and singing along to it. So it's not, a, I, I don't, it's not a slap on what is being played. It's a slap on that that's almost the only thing being played. Or am I missing something? No, I mean, I, I think you're right. So there's always this unintentional thing uh, I, Maybe it's not entirely unintended, but it's a drift uh, in art that tends to be inevitable when something goes from being organic uh, folk art, meaning that it, it kind of emerges organically from a community to serve certain artistic and social ends, which I would say, whether that's old hymns or um, uh spirituals or uh, in the 60s, out of the Jesus movement, quite spontaneously uh, emerged this new uh, thing called Christian music, where you had these guys um, who, uh, you know, Keith Green being one of them, he might have been a little later than that, but um, who were musicians and artists and freak weirdo big open Russell brand types first, right. then became believers, right? And then, man, I'm going to pour myself into my art still, but do it in a way that um, allows or I guess facilitates the experience of Jesus for others. Um, and that was wild and all over the place. And a lot of people didn't know what to do with it. Some of those early guys were playing in clubs and, and whatever. And then as organizations, institutions, systems get better and more efficient at producing whatever the goods are, the X, the utils, the widgets they're making, there can be a kind of slide towards a compressed, more predictable version of that thing. It makes marketing easier, uh, makes everything easier and more efficient if you kind of just, can you keep it to three minutes or four minutes? Can you make it something that almost any guitar player can play quickly to facilitate worship in their church, which is wonderful, but also to be as easy on the ears uh, and digestible as possible? Um, and so I would argue that there has been a compressing a sort of, if you think of compression and if you think of sound as these waves that undulate and go up and down um, and compression, compression as making those waves and those up and down turn, turns uh, smaller and more compact, that kind of happens with music. So it becomes more and more predictable, uh, follows a similar uh, pattern and structure, and that can rob it of some of its diversity and originality. And it's a real struggle, even for guys like Charlie. I mean, he's spoken and written about that candidly. Like it's yeah. a 
we want to do great music. We also don't want to alienate listeners. And to some extent, we're trying to serve listeners. There can be uh, blurry lines between entertaining and trying to pay your bills and selling product and also being true to your art and true to your sense of being in service of, of God and being authentic. That stuff gets hard. So I, I, I do think there's been a lot of that. I mean, you think of the first Jars of Clay record, which felt so odd and fresh. And uh, I mean, I'm a fan. I think they outdid themselves with some of their later records, actually. Agreed. And, yeah, phenomenal. Uh, yeah, but that was like pretty organic. Some guys that went to some artsy guys that went to a small Christian college. One of them happened to be a distant relative of Adrian Ballou. Uh, if that's how you say his name. That's from, him. Uh, yep. King Crimson, amazing yep. musician, vocalist, guitarist. Um, so there was some some artful influence there and some access perhaps to label uh, recognition. Or, um, and that is hard to defend, that, to protect as an artist. It's hard to like, how do we keep this thing alive without it being corporatized? And oh gosh, now we're having kids. How do we continue to pay the bills and sell tickets. Um, Jars, I, I would say, kind of figured out how to do that better than almost anybody I've seen. Um, but radio stations, that the, the, they have to pay their bills. They got to keep the lights on. They, And so maybe it's reflective of the broader culture where you do see, like, I loved hip hop. I was Ray, I mean, this, gosh. I'm about to say the whitest sentence uh, on this podcast, but uh, as a child of the late 70s and 80s in New York, uh, I bore witness to and participated in the birth of what became known as hip hop. So I was a break dancer and, and uh, listen, we had to listen at midnight. We, we can't just let that sneak on by, Justin. You just declared publicly <laughs> you were a break dancer. I did. And I apparently I was really young. I was a little kid. Can and you still break dance? This the more important question is: Can you still do this? Do you not, have a piece of cardboard nearby? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I've okay. I've thought before of like, man, I should. <laughs> I would I like get... to see that. Yeah, you might so pull a muscle, I... but it's worth it for all of us. I feel. <laughs> but you know, out of that, very loose, very diverse. That was uh, hip hop was diverse. So. Um, Cold Crush was a was a hip hop crew in New York uh, early on, early 80s. They were his, uh, Hispanic and black. And some of the earliest um, graffiti artists were Italian and, and in New York and um, so forth. And uh, KRS-One, who's kind of a historian of hip hop and rap, speaks eloquently about this and at length. But... Um, there are parallels, I see, where that was an organic subculture, if you will, that emerged to meet certain social needs. There was a need, there was a movement away from violent um, oppositional gang culture in New York towards community celebration, uh, something positive, and that became, that birthed hip-hop. And, I, man, now we're in the midst of, hopefully on the tail end of, Mumble rap, which, dude, I'm sorry to mumble rap fans, but nah, maybe I should bite my tongue. But it, it's starting to sound the same, man. Like every song 
has the same few lyrics mumbled over and over again. And it's just like, that is not the same as a tribe called Quest or Wu-Tang who are sampling, or the Beastie Boys, um, who were sampling hundreds of diverse records from the jazz space to classic rock, Led Zeppelin, whatever, and making new art that was like brilliant and stunning. Um, that's a struggle right now, I would say. Um, and so that is a, talk about long-winded. There's my answer to what's going uh, on with Christian music. Yeah, great, thank you. And uh, yeah, we, we've run out of things to talk about, Justin, which, which simply means that uh, there's no more pushing off the abyss that is the gauntlet of anxiety questions. So if you're willing to brace yourself like a man, Let's do uh, it. it. Yeah, let him fly. So, okay, well, I think I'm just looking at my list here. I think we've got time for three or four. Great. Let's kick off with a simple one. Let's look at your family of origin. Could you name for us one trait from your family of origin that really helps you and one that always gets in the way? Yeah. Okay. Playfulness helps. Um, and uh, I am really grateful to my parents, mostly my dad. He is a playful fun dude. Um, and he always brought that into his relationships with his employees. He ran some restaurants and with his friends. Um, and we try and do that in, in our family here. We laugh with our kids. I play with my kids and do stupid stuff. Um, my dad also, and he's very open and candid about this, struggled with, uh, struggles with people pleasing and being liked, and so do I, man. I am, right now, I'm fearful that I've overshared about Magnolia and Chip and Joe, and oh gosh, did I say something that was unintentionally disclosed more than I should about their heart for people or philanthropy, or did I, uh, not that they're, I mean, they're the most gracious, sweet employers ever, but you get my point. I'm yeah. a people pleaser, man. Yeah. And when you're trying to deal with systems, like you're talking about with affordable housing, where you might be looking at a 5, 10, 15-year run, yeah. people-pleasing, I mean, you're going to have to have some hard, patient, sober-minded conversations. There's going to have to be some holding space. There's going to have to be some being disliked and be willing to stomach and endure that, et cetera. So, yeah, that's a trait that I'm, I'm continuing to work on. Okay, thank you. Second question, Jeannie Duck says, in the absence of information, people connect the dots in the most pathological way possible. What goes through your mind when you're anxious but you don't have all the information? Um, this is me being trying to be 10 out of 10 vulnerable and honest is blame. And it wasn't until my late 20s, early 30s that I started to recognize myself, recognize myself as a chronic blamer. Hmm. There's a huge problem. It's hurting people. It's hurting me, perhaps. It's making me feel anxious. And perhaps I'm taking on the anxiety of others without knowing it. I need a fix. I don't have a lot of information. Um, and by the way, the need for a fix is problematic because sometimes that's just me wanting to feel less anxious in the moment. I know what I'll do. I'll find a scapegoat, a bad guy. Well, if you people in Waco had just been doing this work for the past 70 years, we wouldn't have to be doing it. But, you know, 
And I've been called on that appropriately and lovingly by some wealthy white um, Wacoans who are like, mm -hmm. hey, man, we love you and appreciate what you're doing and are excited. And sometimes we could stand to have you listen some more. Hmm. That's really good. Yeah. Justin, I think we all carry an inner critic. It's fascinating that some of your initial critic is outward, but for a lot of us, we also turn on ourselves, that voice that tells us we're no good, um, in contrast to God's voice. So I wonder if you would be willing to fill in the blank. What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is to me? What, would, what comes to mind for you? Patient and or generous. I am not, I am my, I'm pretty much my harshest critic, or at least that's a, that seems to be the case pretty often. And then that makes me feel anxious. And then I, in turn, can spread that. Um, and so if I was as patient and generous towards myself as I am towards my kids, let alone as much as God is towards his kids, including me, that is an absolute game changer. Okay. Some of the work I'm doing now is helping people mine the gap between what they believe about God and what they experience from God. So a lot of people, I believe God loves me, but I don't feel it. I believe God is with me, but I don't see it. I thought I'd be further along in my faith by now. Those would be three gaps. Does anything resonate with you where you say, oh, here's my gap right now. I believe this, but I struggle to encounter it. Yeah, uh, I, I'm a chronic anxiety guy. I mean, I'm a, I'm a adult child of an alcoholic. So all of that um, stuff that tends to accompany and in some ways drive that and, and form personalities of adult children of alcoholics. So um, I tend to carry and take on way more anxiety than I'm conscious of uh, at any one time at any given time. It's often not acute. It's not situational. There's a bus about to run over someone. I better push them out of the way. It's it's a Tuesday at 2 p.m. or whatever, and I feel some anxiety. And so that is uh, something that where I feel like it is a promise and command in the scriptures. Uh, to, to not be anxious, to become the type of creature who um, trusts in God habitually um, and finds that and ex experiences that in a way that is uh, uh, pacifying and satisfying and, and breeds um, inner contentment and peace as opposed to anxiety and restlessness. So... Hmm. Yeah. All right. The last question, which is our perennial favorite. When recently have you felt most fully and completely loved? That's a great question. Um, I've had some times with my kids, man, where I waited a long time to get married and uh, have kids because of some of that uh, 
traumatic background, uh, volatility as a child, addict, childhood, et cetera. And um, I wanted to do a lot of work on that before I had kids and I'm by no means fixed or finished or perfect, but um, I feel like I'm a dad that I can live with <laughs> uh, now. And, um, uh, and I've had moments where my kid, my, my kids will say things like, I'm so lucky I have you. Mm. You know, or just dawning on like, oh, other, there are kids who don't have dads or don't have dads that play with them or make time or, um, and that to me is like, oh my gosh, there was a long time I thought I'd never hear a child say that to me. So um, that is a wonderful feeling. My guest is Justin Rossellino. His book is Idiot Sojourning Soul, which is an anagram of his name. It's a pilgrimage book. It's a wide-ranging, entertaining, provocative, philosophical, historical treatment of his own journey, the state of the church, the history of the church. It's a, it's a delightful read, but also the reason I asked Justin to come on the show, I wanted my listeners just to hear yet another model of a for-profit company that is investing part of its profits in the good of its own city. You know, so much of our focus as pastors, which a lot of my listeners are, it thinks church, 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 but our churches are filled with business people who want to make a difference. And uh, I know Justin's uneasy about expressing a lot about what Magnolia does because they enjoy the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, so they appreciate anonymity. But here is a company that's taking seriously their own city, wanting to do not just charity work, way beyond charity, but actual systemic change. And so Justin, one of the people helping them with that. Justin, this has been the treat I thought it would be. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Likewise. I've loved it. Great to talk to you again. Steve, and I hope we get to connect again soon. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.